Chapter One of the Hall in the Grove. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Hall in the Grove by Pansy. Chapter One Little By Paths. Mrs. Robert Fenton sat down in the little red covered chair in the dining room, broom in hand, and wiped from her usually bright eyes two large tears. That dining room was a fair and pretty creation, a poem or a picture done into real life. Mrs. Fenton had never written a poem, never painted a picture, but she had woven a touch of the genius that has to do with these into the furnishing of this home room. A sitting room it was, as well as dining room. In fact, the proper name for it might have been the tea room, for the prosaic meals of breakfast and dinner were taken in a commoner spot, and the dainty teas, set out on fair damask, and garnished with china and silver, were all that she permitted here. There was nothing very remarkable about the furnishings. I am not sure that the Fentons had money enough to be remarkable. There was just that delicate blending of shades and tints, just that disposal of a few yards of muslin and lace, just that arrangement of a pot of ferns and a jar of fuchsias and a box of violets, that, united, form a fair whole, resting the eyes, yes, and the very hearts of lookers-on. As a housekeeper, as a wife, as a mother, Mrs. Fenton excelled. Her own small hands performed all the lighter duties in the home, and performed them well. Her bread was of the lightest and sweetest, her chambers were kept in that delicate purity which rests weary heads and sometimes hearts. Her windows were as clear as hands could make them. Her snowy curtains were looped in graceful folds, and with just the right tint of ribbon to blend well with surroundings. Her vines and plants climbed and budded and blossomed in luxurious fashion. Her husband's buttons were always in place, held by firm threads of her placing his collars and cuffs shone brilliantly, for her own hands clear-starched and ironed them. Indeed, in whatsoever department of home life you looked, you would be likely, after thorough investigation, to pronounce Mrs. Fenton a model. And yet, in the warm summer morning of which I write, she left her berries scorching on the vines, and her pretty tea-room in disarray, while she sat, with sleeves uprolled, and leaned her brown head against the broom, and let the teardrops fall unheeded on her white work apron. Not many of them, she was not a woman given to weeping. She arose presently, and brushed back the tears in impatience at her weakness, and swept vigorously, and reduced the room to its accustomed beauty, omitting no item of usual routine, all the while with certain sad-looking wrinkles in her forehead, and a sore spot in her heart. What was the trouble? Well, you remember that I said she was a model mother. Young Robert Fenton, her only boy, indeed her only child, was the darling of her royal mother heart. For fourteen years she might almost have been said to live and breathe for him. She had sacrificed time and strength and quiet for him, in that royal way which is a characteristic of motherhood, with that grand whole-heartedness about it that never uses the word sacrifice, nor dreams that it has anything to do with her experience. 
she had rejoiced over the perfect limbs and dimpled arm and broad white forehead of her beautiful boy with delight had she fashioned cunning garments for him what a pleasure it had been to brush his rings of yellow hair how careful she had been about his bath and his milk and his walks how she had guarded his beautiful eyes from glaring lights she had watched over the first doubtful steppings she had watched over the first marvellous pearl that appeared in the rosebud mouth she had rejoiced over the pearls of words as they began to drop from the baby tongue mamma papa baby will the english language ever beam for her again with the fullness of beauty that it had that day when robbie fenton first said papa on through the years had the work and worship gone days of agony nights of sleepless watching when the small idol was fever parched days of perfect thanksgiving when the glow of health came again how she had studied this mother to teach robbie the most careful forms of speech how she had watched to keep his heart and mouth pure how she had entered into his childish plays and plans she had been an engine or an engineer a passenger on the train or a brakeman on duty according to the changing mood of the boy for whom she played she had learned the terms which the boys used at ball marbles and indeed all boyish games on purpose to be able to talk sympathetically with robbie she had hovered over the bookshelves and counters where juvenile periodicals were stored and studied the merits of this and that pictorial lingered over pages filled with accounts of boyish exploits and bought lavishly at last from a somewhat slender purse she had talked over with robbie the stories in his books and treasured up sentences which indicated his preferences to bring them forth in aid of her next buying never had a boy a more tender thoughtful appreciative mother and he had well repaid her care through fourteen perilous years of life had he come in safety straight as an arrow morally as well as physically a grand truthful earnest-hearted boy was there need for tears in connection with such a boy as that let me tell you there had come to that mother on the very morning of which i write a sudden rude awakening it chanced that her boy robert was rapidly approaching the crisis of the disease known in these days as examination fever and in his intense desire to pass heart and brain were being strained to their utmost tension he had been tempted to late hours over his books the night before and had overslept that morning yet between the hasty mouthfuls of breakfast which he took he made dashes into certain studies in which he was to be examined that day do you really suppose i'll pass mother he asked the question for perhaps the thirteenth time as she came through the room bearing an armful of fresh table linen be it recorded that hurried and preoccupied though he was he sprang forward and opened the door for his mother of course you will pass she answered regarding him with smiling face and fond proud eyes i don't know about it the examination is awful hard this time the fellows who went through it last year say this is about the toughest one we'll have history is the worst dates you know they go and mix themselves up so horridly i'm awful on dates i wish i had my book here i don't see how i came to forget it 
So the boy talked on, more to himself than his mother, who passed in and out, intent on household cares, yet wearing always a sympathetic face, and having an answer ready for whatever could be answered. Presently he appealed to her again, his handsome face clouded with anxiety. "'Mother, if you'll believe it, I can't remember when that old Severus rebuilt his stone wall. I don't suppose you can help me?' It was hardly a question, though it closed with the upward inflection. It would have been plain to a listener that the boy did not expect help from his mother. Yet there was a note of wistfulness in the words, an eager reaching out for sympathy and help from the mother who had sympathized with and helped him every day of his life. "'No, dear, I don't remember anything about it, I am sure.' The mother spoke gently, almost humbly, and turned at once that her boy might not catch a glimpse of tears. He did not dream of tears. He was a quick-witted boy, but he was only a boy, and an eager, anxious one. "'Oh, dear,' he said, a world of pent-up impatience in his voice. "'How I do wish I had somebody to help me. All the other fellows have folks that they can ask when they get in a tight place.' He did not speak to his mother. He did not mean any reflection on his mother. He was a boy who would have flushed to his temples in indignation had any one hinted that she was not the wisest and best mother that a boy ever had. She had passed on into the next room, and he was simply talking aloud. He did not know, how could he, that every single word he spoke felt like a stab in that mother's heart. I said it came to her as a revelation, this bitter truth that her boy was growing beyond her, in fact, had grown beyond her. Only fourteen years old, and he talked about Severus, and St. Alban, and Ethelbert, and Athelstane, and the Saxon line, and the Danish line, and she knew not what else. Half the time she could not tell whether they were the names of persons or places. How much he knew, this boy of hers! She was proud of him? Oh, yes, indeed she was. And yet, and yet, he was growing away from her. What was this stone wall about which he talked so glibly? It felt to her like a veritable wall, yes, and of stone, reaching up and up to the very sky, aye, even beyond. Who could assure her that the intellectual wall now being reared might not put ages between them in the life to come? She had read a poem once, somewhere, about two lives that clasped hands together across a tiny stream, scarcely more than a thread. The two had walked and whispered together. But the stream had widened and widened, and the hands had dropped apart, and the whisperings together ceased. By and by they could only shout to each other, and at last even the shoutings were lost in the roar of ocean, and the divided lives went their separate ways. The poem had saddened her when she read it. It came back to haunt her this summer morning, and it seemed to her that she could lean forward and distinctly hear the roar of that separating ocean. The little stream had begun. What was to hinder it from growing and growing until it divided her life from her boys? And yet she would not have it otherwise, would not at least have that boy's rapid mental strides interfered with. Oh no, indeed! yet the tears fell over the thoughts of his onward march. 
while she sat in her pretty little sewing-chair she went rapidly over her own past how did it happen that her boy was already ahead of her oh easily enough the same story has been often lived and often told her early life had been one of toil and poverty three months at third-rate country schools in winter and the eldest daughter of a large family struggling to live such had been her story she had done well better than many she had been judged a smart girl she had been the best parser and the best speller in the district school but district schools were not then what they are now and the ambitions and plans and the actual knowledge of her fourteen-year-old son were as greek to her if i could go back now she told herself mournfully and be a girl again a scholar in the school where robert is i could keep step with him but it is too late he is ahead of me and will go farther from me every day do you wonder that the tears fell you have watched plants grow you know how the tiny bud appears and grows and grows opening a little every day you dimly perceive it you hardly realize that it is growing but suddenly there comes a morning in which it has blossomed apparently it did it all in the night it is so with poisonous plants i suppose mrs fenton had dimly felt from time to time for months that her boy robert was getting into a world of his own when he came to her with questions born of pondering over his lessons questions about things of which she had not even heard she had felt it and yet it was as if the full blossom of this bitter truth had flashed before her but this morning still she did not continue to sit in that little sewing-chair and weep as i told you such was not her nature she brushed aside the tears with impatient hand well she said if i don't know who severus was nor when he built a stone wall nor why he built it nor anything about it i know how to make a pudding for dinner and i don't see but robert enjoys puddings quite as well as though he had never heard of severus and his stone wall i most wish he hadn't so she put her pretty home in order and made her pudding with special skill and care and robert and robert's father ate and enjoyed and praised it yet the mother's heart was sore she could not forget severus he represented to her a long line of worthies past and to come in her son's life about whom she knew nothing End of chapter one